I want to tell you a true story this morning about how evil the devil is, because I think sometimes we forget. And when we forget, we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble because we begin to believe the lies that the devil tells us. It's a true story. There was a man who really loved the Lord, and his life reflected that love for God. He had tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and he wanted everyone around him to know the love of God. He was a very loving person, the kind of person who when he asked you, how are you doing, he actually wanted to know. He cared greatly for people. He was the kind of man that would stand up for vulnerable people. If he saw you in danger, he wouldn't just act as if he didn't see it and keep walking. Even at his own risk, he would help people. He saw the goodness of God. He experienced it. And he wanted his life to reflect the goodness of God so that everyone could see it. He was also a man who didn't take sin lightly. He wasn't a legalist. But he didn't look at sins that sometimes we look at, like gossip or so-called white lies or anything along those lines or dirty jokes and think, not a big deal. Because he knew that they offended the Lord and he knew that they hurt other people. He worked very hard to make sure that his family knew and followed the Lord. He was a good man. And God blessed him. He was an older man, but he was healthy. He had been blessed with a large family, and he was very wealthy. Life was good. And then one day, two groups of terrorists entered his businesses, killed almost all of his employees, and were able to steal most of what he owned. And not long after that, through what looked like a freak accident, almost the rest of his wealth was taken away. And as he was he was sitting and contemplating this, the loss of his beloved employees and the loss of basically everything he had worked so hard to accumulate. While he was contemplating that, someone came in and told him, all of your children were together at a party and a tornado struck and every single one of them is dead. It almost seems too crazy to believe. It almost seems like it's not possible for it to be true, but it is a true story. The man's name was Job. And the Bible tells us that Satan was responsible for Job's pain and suffering. But Job was nothing to Satan but a pawn to steal the glory of God. And the deaths of Job's employees and his children, they meant nothing to the devil. In fact, he not only never felt any remorse for it, it's likely he found it all amusing. He looked at his suffering and probably laughed at it. And even though he had caused all this pain and suffering in Job's life, when Satan went before the Lord and the Lord said, do you see my servant Job? In spite of all that's happened to him, he still remains faithful to him. Job's response, excuse me, Satan's response should send a chill up and down your spine. What did he say? He said, skin for skin. A man will give away everything he has for his own life. But if you raise your hand against his bones and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. Satan hated God. And Satan hated Job. So much that he wanted to add as much suffering to that man's life as he possibly could. On top of all the emotional suffering, add physical suffering as well. 
And what happened with Job next, if you're familiar with the story, is he had loathsome sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And I'm sure Satan saw that and he laughed even more. And you know what? Here's the important thing to keep in mind. That if he was given the opportunity, Satan would love to do that to you. Because he hates you. And he hates your husband and your wife and your children and your friends. And he hates everybody that you love. He is an evil, wicked being. He would love nothing more than to bring you and everyone you love to hell with him forever. He has evil purposes, evil plans and schemes, and if you and I are not careful, we will fall into his traps. He is our enemy. He is powerful. He is deceitful. He is clever. And we must not underestimate him. And this morning, we're going to look at four works of the devil and how Jesus' coming destroyed those works and destroyed the devil himself. Our primary text is 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. And you can find it on page 1022 of the Blue Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. We'll look at it together on the screen. John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the first work of the devil we're going to take a look at this morning is disobedience. That's the first thing he tries to get for us to do. Now because of the false teachers that were present in the church that John was writing to, John was writing to help them understand how to discern between those people who are truly following the Lord and those who are simply claiming to, even though they might be teachers and even though they might have wisdom. And sometimes, as you know in your own life, it's not easy to discern that. And so he gave them throughout his letter these different tests. And the first test is simply this. Do they believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Do they believe that he is the Son of God? Secondly, does the love of God flow through them? Not just to people that they already love, but does the love of God for the saints and even for those they don't care for personally flow through them? And then third, do they obey the commands of God? Do they obey or do they not obey? And our passage is taking a look at this third test, the test of obedience. Because you know, when the Lord saves someone, he doesn't just give them a, a get out of hell free card, right? He changes their heart. He takes the heart of stone out of their chest and puts in a heart of flesh. And he gives them his Holy Spirit who moves them and encourages them and inspires them to obey God and his laws. And he does this in part by opening our eyes to see the beauty of God's laws. We begin to understand that these aren't to restrict us. They're actually to maximize our joy. We come to see that everything that God has done for us by by giving us a particular direction by giving us these commands is so that we might experience the full pleasure of his gifts rather than settling for the scraps of sin. So you know that purity 
will give you more joy than pornography. Generosity will give you more joy than stinginess. Forgiveness will give you more joy than bitterness. Psalm 19, 10 through 11 reminds us of how we should look at the commands of God. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey are drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Do you believe that? In keeping the commandments of God, as difficult as it is at times to do that, there is great reward. I think here's the reality, right? Only followers of Jesus Christ actually believe that about all of God's laws. Because God has given us that understanding. So, I'll give you a little exercise you could do in your seats. Imagine if God came to you and he said, go ahead and pick one of my commandments that you don't want to obey, and I'm going to let you slide on that one. I won't discipline you for it. Pick any one you want, and you'll no longer be held accountable for that. Now, could you choose a command that you'd think, I don't want to obey it? Of course you can, because you're sinners like I am. And you probably have five or six that popped into your head immediately, right? But think about it a little bit more deeply. Is there a command that God has given us that you truly believe you would be happier if you didn't have to obey? Do you believe that your life would be happier and more fulfilling if you could lie whenever you wanted? If you could take what you wanted that wasn't yours? If you could gossip about anybody you wanted and God was okay with it? Do you honestly think that your life would be more happy and more joyful? Because if you think so, then you are thinking about the commands of God through the eyes of Satan, not through the eyes of a child of God. Because believers begin to see God's commands the way he does. We grow in our sensitivity to sin and, and our hatred for it. We know what sin does to us and to the people that we love and we want to be free from it. That's why even though John acknowledges in his letter that we still sin, he can say something so remarkable in verse 6. No one abides in him, no one who abides in Christ, keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Anyone who, who abides in Christ, it means first that you've committed your life to Jesus Christ. You are born again. But abiding in him means to have a close relationship with him. You are depending upon him. You are trusting him for all that you need, day by day and even hour by hour. That man or that woman cannot sin without breaking that sin up by godly sorrow and repentance. It is simply not possible because our eyes have been opened to see sin exactly the way it is. When God saves his people, he begins a process to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ, all the time. And we can resist that process so that it goes a lot more slowly but that is the plan. That is the work of God in our lives. But here's where Satan's work comes in. One of his works is to get God's people to disobey the Lord. In fact, to get everyone to disobey the Lord. Because he knows that sin grieves God. And it only brings sorrow and pain into our own lives. He knows that. And he loves it. So he tempts us to sin. He lies about the benefits of sin. And it gets us to doubt the goodness of God and the wisdom of his laws. And he does it to us every single day. And sometimes it's not him, it's just the flesh, it's the world. 
We've heard him say it before. The thought comes into our minds, and we entertain it, and we wonder about it. John makes an interesting point in verse 4. He says, sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin isn't just disobedience, it's defiance. Lawlessness is, in effect, saying to God, you can tell me what to do if you want, but you're kind of wasting your breath because I'm going to do what I want to do. You don't tell me what to do. I decide what I'm going to do. That's lawlessness. In verse 8, John says that that attitude is of the devil because that's how he thinks and that's how he acts and it's what got him thrown out of heaven which is where he wants to keep you from for all eternity. And so let me ask you, do you see this attitude in yourself at times? As I was praying through this message and thinking through it, I realize that what concerns me the most is when we are at a place in our lives with the Lord where we are not doing what he tells us to do and we're okay with it. And I'm not talking about sort of an impulsive sin. I'm talking about thoughtful sin. I'm talking about premeditated sin, intentional sin. That is lawlessness. That is us telling God, I don't have to listen to you. I'm going to do things my own way. Let me be specific, and I can't list all of our sins. Don't have the time or the desire. But some of you are sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. Some of you haven't talked to your spouse in a long time, or you haven't spoken kindly to them. Some of you have a reputation as a self-centered, harsh, or arrogant person. Some of you are stingy with the material blessings that God has entrusted to you. Some of you refuse to forgive someone that has wronged you, and you're not repenting. And that worries me. It worries me when I see it in my life and in the lives of people that I love. And I have to be honest with you, it, it does concern me about our own church. And I'm sure I could say that about any church because we're all sinners. But what I would want you to hear is that you are on very thin ice when you do that. You are presuming upon the goodness and the forgiveness of God. It is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. You realize that Satan is working hard to get you to sin because it robs God of the glory that he receives when you and I trust him more than we trust the lies of Satan. And it robs us of the joy and the blessings that come from obeying the Lord. I'll tell you, I, I have a long way to go. But I'm running out of time to get there, I think I could say. But one of the things that I am so thankful to the Lord for is that the older I get and the longer that I've walked with the Lord, these things become clearer to me. And I really wish that, that I would have embraced these earlier in my life. I could have saved myself from so much heartache. And that, that's what I want to save you from. If you're in that place where you're, you hear from the Holy Spirit or you know from God's word, I should not be doing this, but you're not repenting then you're believing the lie of the evil one. And you've come to a point where you start to believe that, well, maybe, maybe the will of God is too difficult for me. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's just too difficult. But the joy is found in obedience, not in disobedience. And I know it's tough. Sometimes temptation can be so strong, we think there's no way I can overcome it. I have to give in to it, but there's hope. 
There is hope. What does verse 5 say? Jesus appeared to take away sins. It's reminiscent of what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so how does Jesus help us fight sin? Well, in, in far more ways than we could dive into this morning. But I want to touch on one of the most vital. Galatians 5.16 says this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Jesus promised his disciples that after he left, he would send his Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in our life is to empower us to obey the commands of God, to resist our desire to act on the sinful desires that we have. The work of the devil is to get you to sin. Jesus defeats the devil and the lies of his people by giving us the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to obey. Isn't that amazing? We have the power to obey in every and every, in any and every circumstance. So I say walk by the Spirit. And Paul says you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The second work of Satan is the work of deception. The work of deception. In verse John, uh, verse 7, excuse me, John warns his readers not to be deceived because he knew that they were being deceived. The devil is a deceiver. In fact, that's one of his names. His entire work is founded on deception and lies. That's all he knows. There is no truth to him at all. Satan works hard to deceive Christians and non-Christians alike. The Bible says that he masquerades as an angel of light. So people think, oh, that must be an angel of the Lord. And it's not. And according to Jesus in John 8, 44, when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So John's readers, including us, we need to hear what John says in verses 7 and 8, that followers of Christ live righteous lives. Those who do not are of the devil. And Jesus said, speaking specifically of false prophets, but it's a, a statement that's true of everyone, you shall know them by their fruit. So your relationship with the Lord or your lack of a relationship with the Lord will be clearly seen in how you live. It may seem too obvious to mention that, but I think sometimes we're not as bright as we think we are. We sometimes put our trust in people, believing what they say about the relationship with the Lord because they seem so gifted or they seem so wise or they're in a position of authority. Or sometimes we think that we're believers even though our sin isn't unbroken by confession and repentance and godly sorrow. It's why there are so many warnings in Scripture to make sure that you're a member of the household of faith. We are not to take these things lightly. Satan wants you to be convinced that you can ignore the commands of God with little consequence. That's essentially what he wants you to believe. That it's not a big deal what you're going to do. Either no one's going to know or God's going to forgive you or God doesn't know. Whatever it is, it's a lie that Satan wants to deceive you with. His commands can be safely ignored. He does want you to think that following Christ is too difficult. It costs too much. It's too painful. And if you believe that, then he can marginalize you. And he can minimize your joy. And he can, again, rob God of the glory that he would receive if you were truly devoted to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 reveals the devil's plans to deceive non-Christians. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And some of you can relate to that, can't you? 
Before you trusted in Christ, you'd heard the gospel maybe a number of times, but you didn't get it. You couldn't see it. The God of this world had blinded your eyes from seeing who Jesus really is. And then God saved you. And he opened your eyes. So how does Jesus help us fight deception? Again, in more ways that we could describe this morning, but let me hit one of the main ones. He has given us his word, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say this, All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what he's given us to fight deception, the truth of God's word. And God's word contains all that we need to expose the lies of the enemy and to fully trust in God's promises and to follow him. You know, Satan's work is to deceive everyone. The work that we have is to, is to follow the command in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so with Christ's help, we can overcome the deception of the evil one. But we're reminded of just how critical it is for us to be in the word regularly, studying the word of God. It's not a box to check. It's not something that just should make us feel good because, well, I, I, I read God's word today. We desperately need it. We have a devil who is trying to kill us. We need the wisdom of God's word. And if we don't take it in, we are leaving ourselves extraordinarily vulnerable. The third work of Satan is the work of discouragement. It's a work of discouragement. Now John not only didn't want his readers to be disobedient to the Lord, and he didn't want them to be deceived either. He didn't want them to be discouraged because that's exactly what happens when we disobey or when we're de de deceived. To discourage someone really means to take their, their courage away. Another way of putting it that I like is to dishearten someone. Right? You, just, you just have no heart for something along those lines. Have you ever been disheartened by something? Sometimes if you, if you don't get a job that you've been looking for, I got a text yesterday from a friend who'd been applying for a job and interviews and so forth, and he didn't get it. And when I got the text from him, quite frankly, I was disheartened. I read it and I was like, oh, Lord, I know you have a plan. I know you have a good plan for them, but this is difficult. And it's difficult for me to take how much more for them? There's another scenario where I've experienced uh, disheartening. I'm sure some of you have as well. And that's when you're broken up by a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I, uh, I happened to run across a while ago um, a text that was put online, a text exchange of a couple that was breaking up. And in it, the uh, first person said, sorry, we're done. And the other person said, fine. You'll never find someone like me again. First person replied, yeah, that's kind of the point not looking for someone like you. Now, I can joke like that because I never got broken up with by text because texting didn't exist when I was dating. <laughs> but the truth is that when you get rejected like that, you feel unworthy. You feel disheartened. And you start to ask the question, what's the point? I think that must be one of the favorite questions that Satan loves to hear Christians say, what's the point? 
You know why? Because it means that our eyes have been taken off Jesus. They're on the problems. Because you know what? There is a point. Probably many points. And if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, he'll reveal them to us. I think one of the easiest things that Satan can do is to discourage Christians because we still sin. And he's got a lot of material that we provide to discourage us. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you must know already, right, that Satan loves to throw that sin right back in your face. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he is called the accuser because he stands before the Lord, it says, day and night to accuse us. And you can imagine what he says, right? What kind of a Christian are you? You're nothing but a hypocrite. Why would you even try? You're just going to go back and sin again. And don't think that God can use you. You're useless. That's what he says. Don't believe it. John, this first John letter is full of encouragement for those who belong to the Lord. If you look through it, especially in our passage, you see the absolute truth shouted that God's people are free from the power of sin. We are free from the power of sin. We shouldn't be discouraged. We actually should be very encouraged. Let me just show you three of the verses again. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In verses 6 and 7, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Those are wonderfully encouraging in verses. Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. We talked about that already, but think about that for a minute. The very thing that causes you the most pain and sorrow in your life and in the lives of those you love, Jesus came to take it all away. He separates us as far as the east is from the west. We'll never see it again. It is gone forever. It's hard to imagine something more blessed than that. And the reality and the promise that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, that's a great promise. That's a great reality for God's people. And John, of course, isn't talking about sinless perfection in this life. In 1 John 1, 80 says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But the key is the present tense, keeps on sinning. Yes, Christians sin. And yes, we commit some of the same sins over and over again. I mean, is anybody here completely done with sinful anger? Anyone fully conquered pride? I don't think so. But here's the key. Followers of Christ are convicted by their sin. They experience godly sorrow for their sin. And they repent of their sin in between sinning. God is ongoing doing that work in our lives. Our sin is broken up by godly sorrow and the fruit of repentance. And let me just say, if that is not true of you, if your sin is not broken up by godly repentance, then I would urge you to trust Christ for salvation because it is not possible for someone who is a follower of Christ to continue to sin without the convicting work of the Spirit. It is possible for us to resist the Spirit instead of resisting the devil. But it is not possible for you to continue to sin unbroken by repentance and feel no godly sorrow over that. That is the work that God does in our lives. John says in verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. It is a guaranteed work. God will continue to perfect the work that he has begun in us. Our close relationship with him, our abiding with him makes that possible. We are no longer slaves to sin. In fact, we are slaves to righteousness now. God's power overflowing through us. 
And that's what abiding helps us to accomplish. It gives us the power to overcome any temptation that Satan would throw our way. And in fact, in, in 1 John 4, verse 4, John encourages us with these words. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So be encouraged, Christians. Be encouraged. Because God is in you and God wins. So we win. But the only way to fight discouragement is to fight the disobedience and the deception that cause it. Now some of you this morning are very discouraged. And for some it's because even though you love the Lord, you have been giving in to sin. And you're miserable. I remember hearing when I was, uh, was young in church, somebody just said that, that uh, sinning Christians are the most miserable people on the planet because we can't really enjoy the sin and we don't have a close relationship with the Lord at that point. Our relationship with him is, is uh, inhibited. We can't enjoy the sin. You feel dirty and ashamed. And I'm not here to add to that. What I'm here to do is tell you that there is hope because Jesus destroyed the work of Satan, including the work of discouragement. Because he destroyed what it was founded on. He destroyed your disobedience. And he destroys Satan's deception. And he nailed it to the cross. So God's people, you are going to sin. And when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And we need to run to Jesus. We need to rebound quickly from our sin. And lay it all out before him. And not wallow in that sin. And not allow the devil to discourage us. It just keeps us from Jesus longer, right? Amen. Take comfort, at least in this, the very fact that you are grieving over your sin is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Take comfort, at least in that. And don't lose heart because Jesus is with us to help us. And so how does he do that? Well, Jesus' death on the cross is ultimately what destroys the work of the devil. But he also empowers us to fight against him until his ultimate defeat is realized. And one of the best gifts that God has given to encourage us is the church. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, yesterday I had the privilege of being here to attend the men's prayer and praise meeting. Talk about an encouragement. It is a group of men who love the Lord and who love one another. And their desire to encourage each other to follow the Lord was really on full display yesterday. I saw the conviction of sin. I saw godly sorrow, brokenness, and repentance. And I saw more love and grace yesterday than I could possibly describe. It was a glorious thing. And it's something that all of us need. And men, all of you are invited. It beats every week. And women, there are ministries like that for you as well. You know, every one of us needs a brother or sister in Christ to come alongside of us, to put their arm around us and say, Satan is a liar. He is a liar. And Jesus is greater than Satan. And Jesus is greater than the world. And Jesus is greater than your sin. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And that's what God provides us in the body of Christ. That's why it's so grievous as, 
as the author of Hebrews was saying, some are neglecting to come together as if we didn't need it, but we do. If you don't have connections with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's like going to the battlefield with Satan and setting up a picnic. You're a sitting duck. You are so vulnerable. And so let me just encourage you, if you're not connected, ask God to provide godly relationships. Get into a small group, get into a community, and receive the encouragement that all of us so desperately need. Well, the fourth and the final work of the devil this morning is death. Death. John opens his letter in the first chapter, and he describes Jesus as eternal life. He writes, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. And then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You and I were created by God. We were made alive to have a close relationship with him, the author of life. We were created, in fact, to live forever. But disobedience, the first work of the devil, introduced death. And death is the devil's ultimate weapon. He holds people in fear of it for their whole lives. Ultimately, the devil wants you dead. Not just physically, but spiritually, eternally separated from God in hell. That's what he wants. And you know, about 150,000 people die every single day around the world. And Satan's delight is to get as many of them to go to hell with him as possible. And that's why he works so hard to get people to disobey God and to deceive them and to discourage them so they don't follow Jesus who alone can give them life. He wants to separate people from God in this life and in the next. But no matter how hard he tries, he can never separate God's people from God. He can never take away the salvation of a child of God because Jesus has already defeated him. And John wants us to know from this letter that we can have confidence, we can have assurance of our relationship with the Lord if we pass these tests. The language of life and death reminds us of what is at stake. The Bible says that before we came to trust the Lord, we were dead. We were dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus rescues his people from the bonds of death. And how does he do that? By taking on the devil's ultimate weapon and rendering it powerless. Jesus took on death so that he could destroy death and destroy the devil as well. Look at Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. His death destroyed death, and it destroyed the devil. Now, I can't help but think of a really cool scene in one of the Matrix movies, and this is, this is going to make sense. When the hero... Neo was learning about his superhuman powers from Morpheus, his mentor. And Neo said, what are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? And Morpheus said, no, Neo. What I'm trying to tell you is that when you're ready, you won't have to. And later on in the movie, when Neo is being shot at by all these men and hundreds of bullets are coming his way, he simply looked and he said, no. And the bullets stopped in midair. Jesus didn't have to dodge death because death had no power over him. Death had no power over him. And if it had no power over him, it has no power over his people. 
Isn't that amazing? Death, the scariest thing in the world for most people. It has no power over God's people. Can you picture Satan the morning that Jesus rose from the dead, probably gloating that he had won. He had defeated God. He had humiliated him. He had killed Jesus, the Son of God. And then all of a sudden, the ground started to shake. And he must have gotten a little worried. And the stone rolled away, and out comes Jesus. And I imagine Jesus standing there and Satan going, you're dead. And Jesus goes, no, no, I'm not dead. And that's it. He's defeated. He's done. It's over. You and I have no need to be afraid of death because Jesus conquered death, and he conquered the devil. And this same Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's us. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. That's so true. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does that look like in the life of a Christian? In the life of a Christian who's facing death, they have the perspective that Paul so beautifully summed up in Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So how was Satan's work of death destroyed? Through the resurrection power and the reign of Christ. One last scripture I want to read for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When, the, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, the demonic powers, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and it has been destroyed. Disobedience, deception, discouragement, and death. Jesus came and he has destroyed them all. And so Christian, you have been set free. You have been set free. Live in that freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Satan's doom is as sure as our victory. Live in it. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would take your word, your holy, life-changing, powerful word, the word of truth, and that you would apply it to every one of our lives today. This is not a passage that is only for some. It is for all of us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to resist the devil, that we would experience your joy and your power. Father, I pray particularly for my brothers and sisters this morning who are weighed down by their failure to obey. Father, give them hope. Not hope that they can do it on their own. Hope in the power of the gospel and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Father, you're calling each one of us to do something this morning with this passage. And I pray we be found faithful to do it. For your glory and our eternal good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.